Now it's time for the Disney View podcast. Please move across your car to make room for everyone. Our podcast will begin momentarily. Join Dave as he makes his grand circle tour around the Walt Disney World Resort. Dave is a dreamer and an engineer who enjoys the magic and wonder of it all, but understands Disney's place in history and respects the legacy that's been left. Come along and hear Dave's thoughts about Walt Disney World and see it through Dave's eyes. Please stand clear of the podcaster. Por favor, manténganse alejado del David. And now, here's your host. Hey everyone, it's Dave. Welcome to another edition of Dave's Disney View Podcast. On today's podcast, I wanted to talk about Sue. What is Sue? Sue is the largest and most complete T-Rex, Tyrannosaurus Rex dinosaur, that's ever been found. And uh, it has a connection to the Walt Disney World Resort, and I want to share that with you. But first, a little story, a little backstory, a little history, to help you understand how the Walt Disney Company became involved in this, and how Sue can still be found at the Walt Disney World Resort, and I'll tell you where to find her. So the story goes that in 1990, there was a a group of... um, fossil hunters that were out looking for fossils in South Dakota. And they went into the Indian Hills area. I'm not sure exactly where that is, but uh, Indian Hills is, uh, it's in the Cheyenne, near the Cheyenne Reservation um, and near the city of Faith in South Dakota. Um, And uh, I guess it's Hill City is the name of the town that's the closest. But as I said, there's an Indian reservation nearby and that figures into this story kind of prominently. Anyway, this one uh, fossil hunter named Sue Hendrickson Um, was checking some nearby cliffs to look for fossils. So dinosaurs were presumed to have lived in the uh, South Dakota region, in that area, uh, you know, 300 million or so years ago. So she was checking around looking for some fossils, and she actually found a fossil that she recognized as a dinosaur fossil, and uh, she went to the uh, Black Hills Institute, that's a a fossil preparation area, um, and talked to a man named Peter Larson. And Peter Larson looked at the fossils, they dug out a little more, and they discovered that, sure enough, these texture of these and the the style of them, the size of them, would indicate that they are T-Rexes, that this is a T-Rex fossil. So they went ahead and they uh, excavated the entire area, dug out the fossils, and uh, actually were able to uncover it, and they were really interested to find out that there was a T-Rex there, an almost complete T-Rex. Now, in the, uh, in the history of finding fossils, a lot of times you don't find all the fossil records there. It's a many of the bones, it's a lot of the fossil, but maybe not the entire thing. There's an entire story about how there was a uh, fossil hunter back in the I guess it was the early 1900s, the late 1800s in that time frame, who had uh, collected a fossil and uh, had, couldn't find the head for this particular dinosaur that he had. So he actually found a different head and put it on the dinosaur. And everyone accepted that that was the head that belonged with it because he went and found it. But it turned out, you know, maybe 70 or so years later, they figured out it was the wrong head when they found another dinosaur with a similar bone structure, but a different head. And they realized what he had done is he'd kind of faked it to have a complete fossil record. So there was a dinosaur that had the wrong head on it. And so scientists were perplexed for years about what, why this dinosaur would be that shape and size and have that head size. And then it finally made sense. But it was kind of an interesting little uh, side note there that things happen sometimes in the fossil hunting world where, you know, the, the researchers want to have the fame and fortune and they'll sometimes, you know, stretch the truth a little bit. So anyway, this was an interesting fossil because Sue was about 90% complete. 
when they uh, excavated all the bones. They found most of the dinosaur. So they, uh, they went ahead and they removed the bones and they took them over to the Black Hills Institute and uh, you know, did the things that they normally would do for the uh, fossil preparation. But that's when things got interesting. There was the, uh, the owner of the land, a man named Maurice Williams, who was actually uh, one of the uh, members of the Sioux tribe. And he claimed that it was actually on Sioux land, so the Sioux tribe should own it, not the, not the Institute. And my guess is, based on some of the ways some of the articles are written about this, there must have been some contention between the Institute and the Sioux tribe over the years. A little animosity there. Because it sounded like this wasn't the first time this had happened, and maybe there was a little more to it. So anyway, at some point, the, uh, they, dis- they determined that the land was actually owned by the United States Department of the Interior, and it really didn't belong to either side. So the FBI came in in 1992 and claimed all the bones and took them, or actually just seized them and, and wouldn't let the fossil preparation work on them and wouldn't let the Sioux tribe have them. And it went to court. <laughs> they, uh, they sent the, uh, the remains to the South Dakota School of Mines and Technology where they rested for a few years. And the, uh, there was a court case that went on for, I believe it was about four or five years at this point. And there was a lot of interesting back and forth that happened here about who owns what, yeah, the, uh, what the Indian tribes have the rights to, what the U.S. Department of Interior, of Interior has the rights to, what fossil hunters have the right to. So at some point in about 1995 or 6, I'm not exactly sure, uh, I think it was at the end of 95 or so, um, the uh, Sioux tribe was awarded the actual fossils, and uh, they, were, they were given to them. And the ma- this man, Larson, um, that I talked about, who ran the, the, uh, the institute, he was actually sentenced to federal prison for, for having taken bones that weren't his. There's a longer story to him. Like I said, there's a lot more intrigue in this story that doesn't relate directly to the specifics of Sue. But anyway, the, um, the bones were returned to uh, Mr. Williams and the Sioux tribe, and um, then Williams decided it was time to sell the bones. And he uh, put them up for sale at, the South, at Sotheby's for the auction house. And uh, they were going to, uh, going to sell them that way. The Field Museum in Chicago uh, took a keen interest in what was going on in this case, and they were really interested in having these bones. The Field Museum is a really interesting uh, uh, site that has a museum that has a lot of different interesting historical artifacts from uh, early America and, uh, you know, this is our country. And so a dinosaur like this would fit naturally into their, into their collection. So they were interested in purchasing it. The problem is they didn't have the pockets, the money, to be able to purchase something like this. Being 90% complete meant it was probably going to sell for many millions of dollars, and they needed to raise the capital to be able to, to purchase it. So they had to, uh, to try to figure out what they were going to do. So they actually um, went together with a bunch of different groups, including the California State University System, McDonald's, the Ronald McDonald's House Charities, and the Walt Disney Company to actually take these fossils and uh, be able to get all the money they needed to have deep pockets and purchase the fossils. So then there were some individual donors in there as well. Their fear was that along the way, if this dinosaur uh, was auctioned off, at that price point, it would probably wind up in a private collection and would never see the light of day. Most people would never see it. And the Field Museum didn't want that to happen. They wanted it to be on public display. 
Now, this is an interesting side note in history here, that many times in our history, in the history of this nation, the history of this world, things of historical significance or interesting artifacts such as this do wind up in private collections. A few years ago, I was up at uh, Thomas Jefferson's house, Monticello, and we were doing the tour, and it turned out that there was a copy of the Emancipation Proclamation, an original signed copy by Abraham Lincoln, on display at the museum there. And I was like, wow, that's really cool. And I'm talking to the docent at the museum, and she goes, yeah, the owner of this, a private collector, allowed it to be on display for a couple of months or whatever, and he's got a lot of other things that he's going to rotate through here that relate to, you know, the Civil War era history and Abraham Lincoln type things. And I, I thought to myself, wait a minute, the Emancipation Proclamation, the document that Abraham Lincoln signed effectively to free the slaves, is in a private collection. That's crazy to me. How does that happen? It happens because someone, it gets passed down from generation to generation and someone decides to sell it. It goes through an auction house like Sotheby's and a private collector buys it because somebody else can't afford it. And that's just sad in its own sort of a way. So it was really nice that the Field Museum took the time to actually put together a package to try and purchase this particular dinosaur. Now, the dinosaur was referred to from the beginning as Sue because of Sue Hendrickson who found the dinosaur. So it actually kind of came together kind of neatly there that it was named Sue. She, the dinosaur was named after her. And all of these different groups, including the Walt Disney World Company, uh, decided to put in money for the auction. So on October 4th, 1997, the auction began at $500,000 and eventually closed at $8.3 million, the highest amount ever paid for a dinosaur fossil. Incredible. Private collectors were bidding on it. There were some other groups bidding on it. An amazing thing uh, that uh, this went on like this and went to $8.3 million. It's, it's incredible. Um, and that was over the course of, I think it was only a 10 or 15 minute auction. It was that quick. The price just kept going up on it. But when it closed, the Field Museum was actually the named owner of it. So the Field Museum would ultimately house the fossil and put it on display. But one of the things that happened was, since McDonald's had such a large stake in it, they wanted to have some, some uh, role in what was going to happen with it. And they wanted to have, get their advertising dollars working for them, or get those dollars working as advertising for them. So they came up with all these different packaged different things and things to promote Sue and, you know, Happy Meals and all kinds of other things that they would do as part of, the, part of their program. The Walt Disney Company, specifically the Walt Disney World Parks and Resorts, had a plan for putting it in uh, and having the cleanup done at the Walt Disney World Parks. The burgeoning, soon-to-be-open uh, Animal Kingdom was going to be the site where there were going to be uh, fanciful creatures. There was, the idea was to have... Uh, different types of creatures. You're going to have magical creatures, you're going to have dinosaurs, you're going to have uh, other types of uh, animals there. If you look at some of the early signage, it's clear that dinosaurs were always a part of it. There was also mythical creatures that were going to be part of it, and then real animals. So it was sort of this mix of different things at the animal kingdom to show how everything kind of comes together. So they decided that they wanted to ask that um, the preparation lab be at the Walt Disney World Resort. The Field Museum would send down its uh, archaeologists to do the preservation, its preservationists. It would send all the people down. And they would actually uh, go through the bones, clean them, and, and get them prepped for display at the, uh, at the museum up in Chicago. So it was kind of a workable arrangement because this way, more people would have eyes on the dinosaur. They would make it available to the public early on, and then they would put it on display up at the Field Museum. 
So Disney created something called the Paleo Lab. And the Paleo Lab was actually, or the Paleo Institute, excuse me, was actually uh, about where the giant dinosaur is today. If you walk through uh, Dino Land and you're near where the uh, Chester and Hester's Dino Whirl is, and you look left, there's that giant dinosaur there. It's been painted different colors over the years. I think currently it's yellow, if I'm not mistaken, but it's been green and I think it's been blue as well. Um, and it's called Cementosaurus. If you uh, go right where Cementosaurus is and kind of look to your left, if you're walking from the uh, um, from Chester and Hester's and just walk under the dinosaur and look to your left, there's a little patch of land there. That's where the Paleo Institute was. And it had glass windows all the way around and you could walk up and you could watch them actually doing the preparation and preservation of these, of these bones. It was a really pretty amazing thing that they did. And uh, it, the footage, um, they, they also were doing live footage uh, streamed to the, uh, to the museum up in Chicago. So it was kind of a neat idea that they would actually show it there as well. Um, and because it was on display at the Animal Kingdom, it, there were millions of people who saw this dinosaur being prepared. And it was a really cool thing. It, it kind of fit in with the thematics of what Disney had in mind for its Animal Kingdom. And it really was kind of a neat, um, neat thing to, to do. And so you could walk by there at any point over the course of, uh, I think it was like two or three years, you could walk by and you could see it going on where they were actually uh, doing the bones. Now, because there was uh, a couple of bones that weren't discovered, they went ahead and created plastic replicas of those, the ones that, that, that they didn't have. But they colored them to look just like the original bones. If, unless you're looking very closely, you wouldn't notice the difference. I'm sorry, I, excuse me. They colored them differently so you would notice the difference. Um, you, they colored them kind of purplish instead of sort of the tannish that the, uh, that the rest of the bones were so that you could see where the bones were missing. But where I got confused was, along the way, they also made a plaster cast of every single bone, including the fake ones that were all one color. And that plaster cast is what was, is what was left at the Disney World Resort. So after it was completed, uh, they uh, decided to, uh, to remove it and take it back up to the Field Museum. So there was a number of different, um, a number of different things that, that they did to prepare it, to get it ready, and send it up to the Field Museum. Now, along the way, McDonald's got deeper involved as well. This is where McDonald's and Disney's relationship really took off as well. You may remember that around the parks, you would see Disney French fries. You would see McDonald's French fries around the Disney parks. You would see all kinds of other exhibits and things that, that uh, McDonald's was doing. McDonald's sponsored the Animal Kingdom for some period of time. There was a lot of promotional stuff they did there as well. And that was all because of this relationship. This relationship was deep and there was a lot of deep pockets, but there was, had to be a lot of corporate sponsorship that went back and forth. So everyone benefited from the fact that they put money into this deal. So it was kind of an interesting thing that they did. And that's why all of these agreements went on and you saw all this McDonald's stuff happening over at the Walt Disney World Resort. And why there was, why there was Walt Disney World tie-ins and Animal Kingdom tie-ins specifically on the, on the McDonald's packaging. So anyway, once it was finally prepped up and sent off to the Field Museum, where it's on display today, you can still see it there, the cast of it that they made, and they actually made several casts, I believe, but the one they kept at the Walt Disney World Resort is on display in the Animal Kingdom. It's over closer to where the Dino Institute is. So if you're standing at Chester and Hester's primeval, I'm sorry, the, uh, the, the um, Chester and Hester's World, the, uh, the, um, the hub and spoke ride, and you walk, um, you kind of face out toward uh, 
put your put the uh, primeval whorl on your left and walk that direction. There's a little uh, hedging there and some other little uh, displays of uh, greenery. If you walk just beyond them, you'll see Sue on display to your uh, sort of off to your left. It's on the pathway as you're heading toward the Dino Institute. You can't miss her. She's enormous. But she's on display there, and you can see the actual cast of her there at the Walt Disney World Resort. It's one of those remarkable things. You know, most people just walk by and don't think about it. If you're coming out of the Dino, Dino Institute and walk all the way down to, like, where, uh, I believe that's where uh, the uh, Restaurantosaurus is, uh, it'll be on your left-hand side. And like I said, you can't miss it. But walk along and take a look at this. It's one of the most remarkable things the Walt Disney World Resort, the Walt, the Walt Disney Company has ever done. It's got a, a significance in natural history that I think it's lost in time because people don't think about that. You know, it's been, you know, 20, 20 odd years now since this was put on display, since this was done. And people have kind of lost the historical context of... Um, of what's happening there. So, you know, you do all these different things and you look at it and you go, wow, it's really cool that, uh, the, um, that all these uh, things are out there, right? And uh, the, Disney, the Disney company did this and put something on display like that. Now, on the other side, the um, Field Museum put Sue on display, the original bones, on display in the Field Museum and they're, they're readily available. You can walk in. I think I went there about a month after uh, she got there, I happened to be there for some reason, and I went. I was like, I have to go to the museum. I have to go see Sue, and it was an amazing sight. Being on display in a, in a venue like that—that's an inside building, right? Seeing it outside, it's big, but when you see it inside and it's inside enclosed in walls, and you realize how big, it's amazing. Now, what they did is they actually plaster casted the head, and put a the plaster casted the head on the display that they have there at the Field Museum. The real head is down at eye level, and they put it inside a glass case, a plexiglass case, so you can walk around it and look at it. And it's really cool, because you can actually look at the skull. You can look at what, the, uh, what Sue's head looked like. Just amazing. The um, staff did you know, all kinds of research on it, um, about the, uh, you know, on the bones themselves. They, you know, they carbon dated them, they did CT scans on them. They tried to understand what, they, uh, what these bones meant, what, you know, how this dinosaur lived, and how it died. They wanted to know more about it in the archeological sense. It's really pretty cool. Uh, the Boeing Company got involved too, um, because the state of California's uh, uh, laboratory, you know, research arm that was that was investing in this, wanted to know more about it, and uh, was actually involved in got Boeing involved to actually look at it as well. It's it's amazing. So when you look at it, it's it's a really incredible thing that's on the on display there at the um, at the Walt Disney World Resort. It's forty feet uh, long, thirteen feet tall. And uh, it's believed to have weighed about 14 metric tons. <laughs> I mean, just an astoundingly big thing. Um, so, you know, when you think about just how big it is and where it is, it's, it's incredible. Um, so that's one of those things that it's, it's really incredible that it's there, uh, that the Tyrannosaurus Rex was found like this. And the Walt Disney Company got involved with its preservation and its uh, uh, getting it ready for display. And that they were able to put some money up to help keep it out of the private uh, sector so that it would be on display for all of us. So if you go to the Walt Disney World Resort, take a look. Go to the Animal Kingdom and walk by and look at it. It's remarkable. Like I said, it's just it's so big and so amazing. It's worth actually talking about in some ways. Um, so it's just really incredible. It's got a, a kind of an interesting backstory. Um, you know, and I think the whole thing is just kind of neat and it's worth talking about. And I wanted to make sure that I took a couple of minutes to tell you about it and tell you where to find it. 
So that is my podcast for this week. It's a little unusual, a little different. I'll, I'll, I actually did one of my lost and found Disney uh, uh, shows about this specifically. So I'll put a link to that in my show notes page. So if you want to go watch it, please feel free. I'm there where the site is and I talk about it and I give some other details that I don't give in this podcast. A little bit of back and forth. Each one has a little more information in it. This has a little bit more of the backstory. That has a little bit more of the preservation of where it was. You can actually see it. So I would highly recommend looking at that as well. Anyway, that is my podcast for this week. I hope you've enjoyed it. And remember, if we can dream it, we can certainly do it. Bye now. Thank you for tuning in to the Disney View podcast. We hope you had a pleasant stay and arrive home safely. Please remain seated until your ride vehicle stops completely. Then, gather your personal belongings and step out onto the moving platform. And yes, I know it went by so quickly, but don't worry. One of the nice things about traveling on this podcast is that the journey is just beginning. Show notes are available on DisneyWorldPodcast.net. While there, please check out some of our affiliates. You'll also find links to Dave's iPhone and iPad apps. There's an app for pin trading one for finding hidden Mickeys, and an app for finding and tracking pressed pennies around the Walt Disney World Resort. And you never know just what Dave is working on next. If you have questions, feel free to drop Dave an email at davesdisneyview at gmail.com. Original music you're hearing in this podcast is Oslo Doom by Gilberto Gil. Of course, this is a fan podcast and in no way affiliated with the Walt Disney Company.